Welcome back to the On the Blue Couch podcast with Kathleen Brennan. This podcast is about any and all things related to therapy. Hi, everyone. This is Kathleen. I'm here with Arthur Westinghouse today. He's a certified intervention professional, family recovery coach, certified alcohol and drug counselor, consultant and co-founder of Westinghouse Intervention and Family Coaching, uh, which is out of Nashville and with his wife, Diane, which he can talk more about. That's some of what I know about you, Arthur. Is there anything else you'd like to share right now about your business in Nashville and what you do? Hey, Kathleen. Yeah, sure. Worked in the addiction field for the last 13 years consistently. The last eight of those has been full-time as a intervention specialist and family coach. And uh, we're really just committed to uh, creating well-being and a higher quality of life for the families that we work with. And uh, we're really passionate about what we do. We're, we're here to make a difference. So and I've also been in personal recovery from addiction, alcoholism, family dysfunction, trauma, <laughs> mm-hmm. anxiety, depression, mm-hmm. uh, kind of you name it, uh, for the last uh, close to 30 years. And so kind of going straight into what it's been like for you, um, is, you know, beginning with the pandemic and what, how this kind of all started for you and your business, can you kind of describe what that's been like, but maybe it's been uh, different? At the beginning of March, a colleague of mine and I were in, in the middle of a pretty complex um, dual diagnosis. Actually, it was meant to be dual diagnosis, co-occurring disorder intervention that turned into a full mental health intervention. Uh, there were no substances involved. <laughs> so, okay. um, but, you know, thus having... Um, you know, another professional along to uh, be able to handle that. So that that began on the night of the tornado that um, ripped through Nashville and created a lot of damage. Actually, my colleague, I I got her to her car at somewhere around 1130 or midnight, and she drove right through the path of that tornado that we didn't know was going to land 20 minutes before it landed. Um, you know, so time was on our side. Time totally made it side. home. <laughs> time was on her side for sure. Uh, you know, I remember all that. Yeah. Living in the part of Nashville that we live in, um, uh, you know, less than a half mile away, there was some mass destruction from where we live. So, so we we started there, and then um, we were talking about what was going on because it was kind of simmering and this was an intervention of many meetings and I and speaking to the young lady that we were guiding to help. She, um, she pointed out, she showed me a photo, like a fashion photo of somebody with a mask on. And uh-huh. she said, uh, a lot of people are going to make money off of this. And a couple days later, she went to treatment. <laughs> this and- was like, this was like uh, a week and a half into March. So this is before everything fully shut down. Yeah. Uh, so we, you know, it, and it, interestingly, the the family, um, the 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 girl's father was telling me to go and stock up on food because uh, he knew what this was and it was going to be a, a long time before it passed. So these these folks that I was working with actually knew what was going on more than more like than wise I, and, wise and I, tellers, and there, right? And I was there helping them. Generally, I uh, will go home and quiet everything down for 
a few days to replenish and restore my energy and make sure that I'm in great shape for whatever's coming next, whatever next phone call I get. Uh, when you get a phone call, it can be from anywhere in the U.S., right? Yeah. yeah. And then, and then, what happens? Do you just drive out, fly out, meet with oh, them? Oh no, first? generally, um, yeah, generally, what happens is Diane, uh, my wife, will take the first call. Um, she'll do a free thirty-minute um, phone consultation, and then we generally will move to a uh, paid consultation. That could be the same day, it could be the next morning, it could be the next week. We, you know, we'll usually invite immediately immediate family members of the individual that the family member's calling about. That's up to three hours, that consultation. And then they'll be able to make an informed choice of whether they want to move forward with our help. And then we'll, you know, schedule it. it all that can actually happen within the same day, depending on the level of crisis that's going on. Um, okay. But it, it's really important that um, before we just show up that everybody has a really clear idea of who's showing up and whether they are willing to work together. And, um, and I need to know that I'm the right fit for this as well. Like I, I'm not going to be the right person for every situation, you know? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I may bring in another, a colleague to collaborate with to, to make it more specific to that family situation. Or, you know, if, if it's out of my scope of practice, then I can refer to one of my trusted colleagues. So that's considered the intervention part. I'm guessing that you're meeting with a lot of people who are going into recovery for the first time. And so how do you describe to families and to clients that you're working with exactly what addiction is uh, what recovery is? You know, it's either a substance or a behavior. It can be, you know, prescription drugs. It can be addiction to alcohol. It could be um, process addiction, sex addiction, gaming addiction, social media addiction. Actually, at one time, I, I showed up and these, these brothers were concerned about their sister who was married to an alcoholic for years who cheated on her for years, and it ended really bad for her and I think something inside of her cracked. And she, um, she started at getting onto um, the dating sites and what she wound up getting into were, um, she thought she was talking to he or him and she was talking to a group and they that had a money laundering uh, thing going. And somehow she got toiled up into that and she was actually planning on getting on a flight to go meet him or the they <laughs> and uh the brothers intercepted that and spoke with a specialist about this brought me in solely to not scare her away just to mindfully prepare and extend an invitation to accept some help her back home and really just kind of wake her up mm -hmm. <laughs> and and it actually it it went really, really well. So that, you know, it, it's never, uh, you never know what kind of call you're going to get. And, you know, when I spoke with them, I was like, yeah, you know, this, this actually makes sense. I think I do have something that I can offer here that can guide us to a better place. That was something that had been going on for a year and a half. Part of her, I'm sure, knew this wasn't right, but there was, there was some level of internal addiction at play, something was getting fed there that she kept 
playing along and, and having that whatever validation she was getting, you know, then your, your um, most common obviously is your alcohol and, and drug addiction. It's hijacked the brain. Um, you know, the person just continues to go back to that because that's where they get their comfort from. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Whereas, I mean, for me personally, it was as simple as uh, when I didn't drink or have any drugs to do, I, um, I didn't like the way I felt. And when I had something in my system, it felt a lot better. And so Mm -hmm. I just wanted more of it felt a lot better. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, it was that simple. It wasn't like I wasn't consciously trying to avoid anything. I wasn't consciously hiding from anything. Um, I just wanted more of that feel better, you know, mm-hmm. because my, my life didn't feel so great when I didn't have that substance. And, and the more I did, the more my brain relied upon that, right? So the more somebody uses drugs or, or uses alcohol, you know, it starts with a level of misuse, right? prescription mm-hmm. drugs being misused, you know, or, or they're it, these days they're being used as prescribed and, um, and people are profiting off of them being addicted where, you know, it gets to the point where the person uses specifically to avoid withdrawal, the, the withdrawal from whatever drug they're using or alcohol, you know, alcohol is the number, number one. You can actually die from the withdrawal if you're physically dependent. They're just drinking or doing the drugs to avoid the withdrawal. The party's over. The party was over a long time ago. And for a lot of folks these days, there never was a party. They just uh, went in with some pain and, and wound up with an addiction. What do you share with families when you start meeting with them? I mean, do you, I'm hearing a story that feels actually really inspiring, given that you've had the experience of what you just described and then moving into sobriety and your own recovery and living a very full life and having tons of ways to cope. I mean, we were just talking about yoga before we got on here, right? How long have you been doing (laughs) yoga for now? Uh, 10, 10 years. I think, yeah, you and I used to practice together when I first started. (laughs) That's right. Bikram, you you introduced me to it. Bikram yoga, hot yoga. Yeah. That was a really hot room, by the way. (laughs) Lincoln Park, right? You had to find the one, you had to find a little space by the window. Yes, There's always by the window. Of, and if they hogged it up, I'd get like mad. I'd be like, oh man, come on, this is going to be hard. <laughs> you know, it's like surrounding a window versus surrounding a fire when you're outside. Especially cold. like Chicago, Chicago in the wintertime, like there's no way you can keep a nice cool breeze out of that window in the wintertime. There, there was always some <laughs> cool breeze was going to come flying past. Like a, a like a life bit. preserver. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, speaking times, of addiction, yeah. some people were are addicted to that hot yoga. You know, they I, can't stop. I believe it. Yeah, but going back to working with families, you coach them and you you educate the family on what exactly. You know, we'll we'll talk about what they're dealing with initially, specifically. Like when I talked about the up to three hour consultation. You know, a lot of what is is spoken about there gives me a real, you know, firsthand idea of what they're really dealing with. And I start to get a feel for what these relationships are like, the, the, the family system relationships. And 
that generally drives the education. So I have education that we, we work off of, but the information in that consultation drives the education. So I'll, I'll hit on key points within that education that makes it specific to that family's situation. Ultimately, where we're going is basic fundamentals of addiction, the, the kind of behavior that somebody engages in that uh, keeps them in the comfort zone of their addiction, right? Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of folks call them manipulative behaviors, manipulations. That kind of have a, has a negative connotation, so I, I, I kind of j- try to steer away from that, but they're, you know, for a lot of people, they're their survival skills that they developed whenever, and they just don't translate really well into adulthood. And then you um, add uh, ad- addictive substance in there, and then everything just goes to a whole other level, and, and there your word manipulation comes in. They're not, they're not, these people aren't like manipulating because they're clever manipulators. It's all instinctual, you know, so, mm-hmm. um, you know, they, they, find that when they engage engage in a certain behavior, they get what they want, right? So when the person gets what they want, what am I going to do? If I get what I want, I'm going to keep doing the same thing. If I keep getting what I want, that gives me comfort, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that part. And then uh, the next part is that, you know, the enabling behaviors that's on the, the part of the family, you know, we lay it out in a very educational way. It's not a shame game. It's not a blame on the family. It's not, you know, waving our finger at them, but like, Hey, look, if we acknowledge, uh, you know, and it's more than just it saying, yo, well, I'm an enabler. I've been doing it for years. Like, okay, how, how have we been doing that? What, what effect has that had? You know, what are the results? What have the results of that enabling been over all this time, you know, and, and really putting a magnifying glass on all the, you know, the different types of enabling, right? If we can acknowledge what doesn't work, then we can make room for what actually does work, right? Then we start talking about setting healthy limits. We talk about setting healthy boundaries. You know, there's a whole education on that. And then at a certain point, you know, it's like, okay, family, I've given you everything I've got right now. I think you need to sit down and have a discussion about what your limits and boundaries are going to be moving forward, not we're putting them on the street and we're never talking to them again. We're, you know, we're done. We're cutting them off. And, you know, that, that's, that's what, um, you know, a, a lot of times families get when they may call say a treatment center and they um, get an admissions person on the phone. And there's some great admissions people. I don't want to, you know, knock them, but there are some folks that are driven by other things that will, the family will, will get with on the phone and they immediately go to, yeah, you just cut them off, you know, cut them mm-hmm. off and, and let them feel it. And, and then they'll call and they'll be willing to come in, but there's no safety net. So with us, it's like, okay, family, we, we revisit, we've set our limits. We've set our, our boundaries. We've put them on paper. What, what safety net do we create? What safeguards do we put in place to ensure mm-hmm. that, there's actual real professional guidance going on throughout this process. This is not, you know, a situation where everything, everything relies on this person entering treatment right now. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. obviously we want to expedite that process, but 
you know, we're dealing with human beings. Human beings keep doing what humans do. They just keep moving. (laughs) (laughs) So, so, you know, that kind of the education. And then we actually have a process that we implement and, you know, that's adjusted. And we we actually have multiple processes. A lot of times there's a combination of those. You, You cannot enter into this with a cookie cutter type approach that that just doesn't go well. So you're you're talking about the intervention and coaching part and then moving into maybe my question is how do people know that they're on the path to recovery? What does recovery look like? How do you talk to people about what that looks like? Recovery is another broad term. Like there's a lot of a lot of professionals I'll I'll you know start getting to know in in the field in the industry and and I'll feel a genuine connection with who I'm speaking with. And we may have met like a handful of times or seen each other over the years at conferences or, or something like that. And at, at a certain point, it always comes up where like the person may say, well, you know, I'm not in recovery, right? Because they'll pick up on that. I've made the assumption that they're in quote recovery. And it's like, well, I hear you, but, um, with, with the kind of engagement that you and I have had and the fact that you work in this field uh, tells me you're in some kind of recovery. <laughs> it may not look like, quote, recovery, but maybe recovery on a deeper level than, quote, recovery. You know, mm-hmm. um, usually I'm, I'm picking up on we've, we've got some, some things in common that have nothing to do with alcohol or drugs, and there's that level of recovery, you know. Maybe the trauma more, recoveries yeah. or the, the family dysfunction okay. recoveries, you know, that kind of stuff. And, and, and ultimately, when, when people get into recovery from addiction or alcoholism or, you know, whatever, gambling or whatever their addiction was, you know, at, at some point in that process down the road, they'll start to, to tap into that, the recovery around those things that I just mentioned you know, mm-hmm. around the, the, you know, the traumas, the, the family dysfunctions, the, you know, that kind of stuff. So, mm-hmm. and some people, um, some people will continue to avoid that stuff and they wind up relapsing and then they can't stop relapsing because, you know, traditionally, you know, uh, 12 steps, uh, you know, it's like, okay, I, I, you know, I clear off all my side of the street. I, I clear up all my wreckage of my past. Um, I develop a daily healthy practice. I develop multiple daily healthy practices. And then, and then it's like, yeah. Um, and, and every time I'm having a, a, a tough day or I'm not doing well, or I'm, you know, um, I'm really at feeling I'm at the emotional bottom. I need to go find somebody to help. There's a lot of value to that. If you don't have this the skill set to sit with what you're actually experiencing and process through that and and um, and get beyond that, um, yeah, going and helping somebody else will save the day for a certain amount of time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then that thing that you're kind of avoiding through that, whereas that saved the day for a long, maybe a long time, maybe years. Mm-hmm. Um, that thing that you're not dealing with is building steam and catching up with you. It will always um, be there. Yeah. It, so, it eventually has to be. Yeah. If I'm aware of it, it's my responsibility to deal with it. So you're kind of describing this, how to think about a little bit of recovery and that people 
eventually at some point when they're ready, um, need to look at some of the origins of why they wanted to avoid their feelings. And some, sometimes, if not oftentimes, it's connected to family trauma and dysfunction. Um, so as far as a relapse, how do you think about it and educate people about what exactly that is? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so relapse is obviously I've, I've lapsed into a, a behavior that wasn't so great for me, whether it's, uh, you know, engaged in um, using drugs, drinking alcohol, uh, toxic relationships, codependency. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Relapse is another broad term, right? Totally Um, is, yeah. When you're talking about relapse into addiction, I I, I had a friend years ago, one of the nicest guys in Chicago. Everybody loved this guy. Back in the, I'm talking back in the 90s, um, I remember when he um, he got sober, 11 years in, and he never used heroin before, right? Um, mm-hmm. his, his thing was alcohol. Somehow he relapsed on heroin. Mm-hmm. So I guess that wasn't a relapse. It was just a lapse, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and he was fighting to, to get back and, and get back to sobriety, and he couldn't. This was only a course of a couple of months um and he died i remember i saw him a few days before he died and i pulled him to the side and i just said um like i said i just want you to know like i i have no judgment for you know what's what you're dealing with i said i said i'm just here to support you you know mm-hmm. and, I, and i care about you mm-hmm. and um yeah and a few days later i heard that, that he passed I, and and you know this was probably you're you know looking at mid two thousands or so mm-hmm. uh, when this when this happened. I met him back in the nineties, <clears throat> late nineties, and um, you know I, I always wonder in, in talking about it like was he? I wonder if he was on prescription medication, prescription opioids, and then wound up. It just meant that, you know, I wasn't educated around that back then, mm-hmm. um, you know, but looking back now, it's like, I could almost bet that that's what was going on before he picked up that heroin. Well, can you share with people, I've seen a documentary or a few on what you're talking about on the link between prescription medications and opiates, or I mean, um, heroin. Yeah, so, you know, it's it's just kind of, what, what's been happening is people are, and especially I've, I've run across it in, in a lot of these interventions, young people who were athletes in school that suddenly had an accident or pulled something or broke something and they were prescribed opiates. Um, they went down, they, they quickly started going down another path uh, their passion for, you know, their, their sport that they were engaged in or whatever kind of started to go out the window and um, really in, in a short period of time um, wind up becoming addicted. They start buying the pills on the street. They realize they can't afford to buy the pills on the street because the pills are really expensive. And then they start going for what's, you know, 
a cheaper way to get the feeling that they want, right? Mm -hmm. A cheaper way to uh, avoid the withdrawal. You know, they'll, they'll shift over to heroin. They may start snorting it. Um, mm -hmm. You know, if, once the withdrawals start getting bad enough, they realize that shooting it um, is a quicker way to resolve that. And then, um, you know, when times get really tough, uh, they can't afford the opioids, so they get to the really cheap stuff, and before you know it, you've got meth addiction, and the, mm -hmm. and 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 you know people are slapping diagnoses on these folks, saying they're you know got schizoaffective disorder when they're they're really uh, just showing the symptoms of meth addiction. So that that's kind of a that's a run through of uh, you know I. I can't tell you how many times I've run across that exact progression. And the parents are just like, we, we don't understand this. We don't know what to do. We don't, yeah. you know, and a lot of times with these kids, they, they do come from pretty, pretty normal <laughs> families. Mm -hmm. You know, not, not everybody who winds up with addiction has a history of addiction. So I know that today we're talking about relapse prevention during these times. Um, Maybe we start with talking about what relapse prevention is and then moving into what's different about right now going through a pandemic and more social isolation. Yeah. Yeah. So relapse prevention, I mean, generally when somebody you know, goes through treatment, there's a relapse prevention plan. If somebody, um, say, gets sober off the street and goes into an AA meeting and gets a sponsor, you know, they may not call it a relapse prevention plan, right? But there's actually one that's transpiring, like with things like, oh, uh, if we're going to engage in this relationship, this sponsor-sponsor relationship, it would be a great thing to start with, you know, to have you give me a call every day and we'll just check in. You know, um, traditionally, like old school 12-step, they they would get right in, into the, like they would move the person into their home and they would get right into working the steps. Like they would go through the 12 steps in like a few days or a week, you know, because the person was looking for relief, you know, from their addiction. And that's what they knew gave relief was the 12 steps. So, you know, and, and then they would, um, they would create a plan when that person was going home. So that, you know, they were doing that kind of stuff back then. Now you've got, you know, skilled professionals that, you know, I, I think we've probably evolved in a lot of ways that, um, you know, there's a lot more science involved and stuff like that. But, you know, it is powerful when you can kind of mix what I just shared, that example, with some good science, too. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and so part of relapse prevention is identifying what triggers you, what you know, nudges you back toward, um, toward the substance, toward the behavior that, um, you know, had you using the substance to medicate, um, you know, um, what are, what are you filling your days with? What's, what's my day look like? How am I starting my day? How am I finishing my day? Um, what do I, what do I do when I have idle time? What am I filling that with? You know, mm -hmm. so everybody's relapse prevention plan is going to look a little bit different, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, 
some some people just keep pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing through their day you know that person probably needs to take frequent like like stop slow down breathe you know take time to connect with people like Mm -hmm. that could be part of their relapse prevention plan Mm -hmm. some people um who are especially like myself i dealt with depression for years and you know in my um early 20s and late teens um i got sober when i was 17 and then had a mountain of depression and anxiety and trauma and all that to climb you know Mm -hmm. so if somebody's prone to laying in bed in a depression it's like okay i have to have a response to myself what how am i responding to myself am i beating myself up for doing that right or am i having a gentle response a loving response, a compassionate, caring response to myself, but mm-hmm. also followed through with, okay, I'm in a situation here. What am I going to do about it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. that was the wisdom of my, my first sponsor, Jimbo, was, you know, I would call and I'd give him a list, a laundry list of everything that was going wrong in my life and, you know, um, you know everything that I was dealing with. And he would just have one simple response. What are you going to do about it? And I came from a place where you did not show that you didn't have things figured out (laughs) because if you didn't have things figured out, this world was going to eat you alive. So I, you know, that was the greatest question somebody could ask me was what, what what are you going to do about it? And now my first thought would be like, okay, I have to have a good answer. What am (laughs) I going to do about it? Give me a second. (laughs) And, 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 but my brain started thinking about what, I was going to do about it as opposed to lying there in it. You know, I I had a friend, my, my other friend, his name was Jim too. There was Jimbo and Jim, Jim, the first friend that I made when I got out of treatment in 1991, the first year was like amazing. My first year sober is like, Oh, all this stuff is brand new. I've made all these great connections. I didn't realize these kind of people existed. You know, year two comes around suddenly hit with depression, anxiety, don't understand this. What am I experiencing? This doesn't feel good. You know, can't keep a job, working miserable jobs, factories, graveyard shifts. I thought that's what people did. Oh, you just take whatever job will choose to hire you. I wasn't taught like, oh, you can choose to do what you want to pursue and you can go and create that for yourself. So Uh I worked these really depressing, miserable jobs and I'd call Jim every day and be like, hey, Jim, I'm depressed again, but I'm calling you just to make sure I'm connected. And he'd say, well, come on over. And he'd go in his garage and he'd pull out like an old chair and uh, a sander and some stain and say, take some time. No rush. Relax. Make it look nice. That healed me. That healed my soul. That taught Mm -hmm. me the value of moving a muscle and changing a thought. Moving a muscle and changing a thought. And those were his his words. <laughs> he was those, well, they're he's great like, words. Move a muscle, yeah, change to live by. You know, um, you know. I'm writing that down. Tough day. Clean the house. Like I don't want to clean the house. Clean the house. <laughs> you know. <laughs> I mean, but uh, these these are, you know, they sound like commonsensical type things, but most of us don't have that built into us. Somebody needs to teach us those kind of things. So, you know, that's really the value of you know, when somebody comes out of treatment, part of the relapse prevention plan a lot of times is 
getting a mentor, asking mm-hmm. someone to be your, you know, AA sponsor, NA sponsor. That's another word for a mentor, right? Somebody mm-hmm. who's walked a few steps ahead that can actually show you how, how to, how to do this. Um, you know, support group, um, support group is just a, you know, kind of your standard component of a relapse prevention plan. And my grandfather died with 30 some years sober. He did AA for probably four or five years. And then it was all Catholic church for him. That was his support group. Mm-hmm. Great for him. Would have never worked for me, but, mm-hmm. uh, he, you know, he, when he passed, he, um, you know, he left, left behind a, a lot of great memories and a great legacy. So, um, there's something about routine, intentionality, practice, yeah. accountability. I know you talk about accountability a yeah. lot. You know, routine, like we talked about this morning, I started the first thing I did. I did some physical uh, yoga, some physical stretching, some exercise, some, you know, kind of a lot of work on my spine. I find that when my, you know, I'm prone to, to back aches because in the nineties I did a lot of construction. I ran jackhammers and did concrete repair and, and dug a lot of holes and that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, I, I, I'm prone to that kind of stuff. So it's really good for me to do things that are good for my back. When my back is sore, I'm not really pleasant to be around. (laughs) Right. So I need to take care of that. You know, I do that. I take time to meditate, to get quiet. I do pray, you know, I, I, I pray for others. I, you know, I ask for help. I say, thank you. Um, these are things that I started doing when I got sober. Somebody taught me how to do these things, you know, mm-hmm. um, they're just great practices to have. And, and everybody's a little different. Different people have different things that, nurture their soul, you know, reading, reading books that, um, you know, that are inspiring or, or lift you up, what choosing to watch things that are inspiring or lift you up. Like Diane and I watched the uh, Netflix, the, the, uh, the documentary on Kevin clash, the creator of Elmo. Uh, oh my amazing. Just Is amazing. Okay. What an amazing man. Um, and just filled our spirits, like lifted us up. We just watched that. And then uh, we put on uh, Last Dance, the, the Chicago Bulls, um, you know, around the 97, 98 season. But it goes into the whole story and just what an inspiring um, story, you know. Mm-hmm. Di- Diane's like, yeah, you're like, uh, you're like the Michael Jordan intervention. I'm like, I don't, I'm not going to go there with you. I am driven. I'm driven, but I don't know if I'm that. Like. You're pretty driven, Arthur. <laughs> so given now, right, you've been talking about intentionality, accountability, having a mentor, having a routine, um, naming some of those things about self-compassion and gratitude. How do those things translate today, given that we're not moving around the world like we were um, and that we are going through this pandemic right now. What would you say to people for their own relapse prevention and how to think about it right now? I I think there's a lot of adjustments that have obviously happened in all of our lives, whether you're in some level of recovery or not, we've had to make a lot of adjustments, right? When somebody's in recovery, say from addiction or alcoholism, you know, there's some other challenges that present and 
Um, whereas somebody's daily routine may have been showing up to a meeting every day, walking into a meeting. Now they're logging into a zoom meeting, you know? Mm -hmm. And, um, <clears throat> I think it's, <clears throat> it's really important to just be diligent in staying connected. Right. So I'm, I'm either going to choose to assess what I'm dealing with and adapt to it and do the very best that I can with what I have to work with, or I'm going to start letting my daily practice fall off. I'm not going to get creative. I'm going to fall into depression. I'm going to fall into bouts of anxiety. You know, I'm sure there's a lot of people dealing with domestic violence and stuff like that these mm -hmm. days. Like, it's a lot of cabin fever, you know. This is really challenging for a lot of folks. It's been challenging for me with somebody who's had a lot of years in my personal recovery and, and experienced a lot of things and had a lot of trials and tribulations over the years. Um, going into a two-week depression at the beginning of this COVID thing was what I experienced and um, hadn't experienced that in years and it really threw me off having been down that road before having experienced a two-week depression years and years ago multiple times over I knew how to get out of that get back on with it a lot of people don't have that so it really boils down to no matter what the best rule that you can have is I'm going to pick up the phone and I'm going to ask for help mm. I have to decide that um, no matter what happens here, I'm going to continue to pick up the phone and I'm going to continue to ask for help because I don't have this all figured out. I need to get over the, the, the feeling or looking weak part because there's nothing weak about asking for help. That type of vulnerability is one of the most empowering things that you can do for yourself. And it's a great example for others to see that, hey, it's actually safe to ask for help. Look, this person is asking for help. And look, their life's getting better, right? Mm -hmm. You know, it's not calling and saying, oh, can I'm, uh, I'm really struggling. Can you do this for me? No, I'm really struggling. I need to connect with you so that I can get through this. I need a lot of help. You know, that I think is, um, that's really most, the most important thing. Well, I, I've been kind of skilled and a little intuitive at, stepping out of the way before, the, before the big bus runs me over. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. you know, I've, I've, I've had this knack over the years for stepping out of the way at the last second, you know, and, and managed and managing to continue to stand upright with whatever I'm dealing with. Not everybody has that. Right. Mm -hmm. So you were really diligent in your recovery and engaging in your daily healthy practice before this whole COVID-19 thing hit, uh, that needs to double, triple, or quadruple now. Well, I was going to say, and then for people who are just starting out, Zoom meetings, reaching out for help, are there specific kinds of people that you recommend that people reach out to for help? You know, some people don't really have big social circles, and some people would feel like they may not have anyone, actually. What would you say to them? You can look up, if somebody's dealing with alcoholism, you can look up you know, the, your local um, AA website with a, a directory with a list. A lot of times they have the Zoom links right on there. 
you know, Narcotics Anonymous, they've made that available. They have like whole Facebook pages. You could, you know, who's not on Facebook? You, you can, and, and be mindful, like there's some interesting drama that happens on those Facebook pages. But, you know, there, there is a way to connect. You know, if, if you see somebody on there that posted something that spoke to you, you can connect with that person, reach out to that person. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I do, personally, I do, um, you know, the adult child work. I have a support group that a guy who's fairly new, he'd been to four meetings, raised my hand in the chat if they, when they asked if someone could be a sponsor and he, he immediately connected with me and said, hey, I, I'm looking for that. Can I call you? And, um, you know, that's somebody who'd been to four meetings, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and he's been sober probably a year and a half. So this is really upping his sobriety. He's got a, sp- a sponsor there and a sponsor over here. So, he's, you know, he's really committed to creating something different in his life. And, and the beautiful thing is that was a gift to me, you know, for that man to, to reach out and um, just put himself out there and, and ask for help, um, committing to, you know, doing the steps with this person every week is, is, uh, really taking, taking my recovery to another level. So there, there's a, you know, it's everything kind of goes circular. Um, Mm -hmm. yeah. So, you know, I, I think, you know, looking up your, you don't even have to look up, you, you could be in Nashville and say you don't like the meetings that you found in Nashville. You want to try one in New York, look up a meeting list in New York and click a zoom link there. You know, Mm -hmm. you, you know, it, I think that's, that's important if, you know, if, if somebody's like I had recently a, a gentleman call a, a doctor referred him to call us and we called and did a consultation with he and his wife and, um, you know, kind of ignored our follow-up emails. Right. Um, we didn't get a response to that. And then we got a call that the person was in the hospital because they were choosing to, out of pride of out of not wanting to look weak, detox herself from alcohol mm. <laughs> on their own in the house. Mm-hmm. And fortunately they lived through that. Mm-hmm. And then we received a call. Okay. Um, we, we didn't like your first referral for treatment, but we want another one. Can we have it? I'm like, yeah, of course. Well, you know, mm-hmm. you know, so I think that's something to be mindful of that um you know it's it's that's another thing on on the concept of asking for help a lot of folks will ask for help and then bat the hand away as they're asking for it so it's a combination the the successful combination is asking for help and then accepting the help that's being offered those work together well if i don't accept the help that's being offered i have nothing i have Mm -hmm. nothing and i'm probably going to, things are going to keep getting worse. Well, I did ask for help, but I didn't accept the help that was being offered to me. There are a lot of successes. There are, you know, people that are getting through this, people that are, you know, their, their recovery is, is actually getting stronger through this. I, I can say that mine has. I've chosen the meetings that I've connected with wisely. I, I you know, choose who I'm calling wisely. And you know, understanding what your quote triggers are, what triggers use. You know, a lot of times for me, it's like, 
certain family relationships. Um, you know, understanding that, uh, you know, I was taught early on bringing up the past is what wakes up the devil. Like, don't bring up the past, you know, especially if you're doing the sheltered in place thing, like the last place you want to be bringing up the past is in there, you know, spiraling uh, and spinning. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, yeah. I, I had, I had a family member when this COVID thing started that initially led with just a, a shame assault on me over nothing, whatever was going on in their head. I hadn't spoken to them in probably years. It's like, okay, just because this is going on doesn't mean this is a free-for-all and a feeding frenzy. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, Not happening. And, and so I had to draw a limit and a boundary there. So I had to, you know, and that limit really is like, hey, there's peace and silence. I can't allow that in. That, that will hurt me. You know, uh -huh. so understanding relationships that are triggering and that can cause harm, I think, is really important. Mm -hmm. Obviously, routine. But not not the hamster wheel routine, like where you're doing the same exact thing every day. You'll get sick of it. You'll get bored. You'll get tired. You'll stop doing it. You know, get creative. Keep mixing it up a little bit. You know, mm -hmm. um, you know, connection is is really key. Asking for help and accepting the help that's being offered is key. You know, filling the idle time with things that are good for your spirit and your soul. Watch what kind of music you're listening to. I have to watch what kind of music I'm listening to. You know, there's there's some like dark, depressive music that I like. I don't need to be listening to that right now. You mm -hmm. know, um, you know, like uh, was I listening to like the last album from Prince that he put out? It's like it's like it's got this like happy kind of upbeat feel, but like some really serious. Uh, material that he's singing about in there which actually it's kind of cool because i like it because it's real but it's still like it's still lifting me up and, and hitting my spirit in a good way at the mm -hmm. same time you know mm -hmm. um you know that that kind of stuff um just you know making time to, yeah. to to connect with the support group you know making an effort to check on each other to check on friends family you know, people you care about. Um, yeah, find find something fun. Like, have fun. Have fun. Do That's some things reminder. that you, yeah, do some things that you just wouldn't normally have gotten to. I mean, I've gotten to a lot of those. Yeah, the, the, these, these times are an opportunity, really. You know, there's somewhere... Um, you know, in the AA literature where they talk about, you know, when World War II broke out, they found that um, a lot of the AA members, people who were getting sober, um, actually, they had fewer alcoholic relapses over there than they did people back here. So it's, it's kind of like when the chaos hits, it's like for a lot of us, you know, another level of motivation and drive to take care of ourselves kicks in. And if it's not kicking in, what can I do to make that kick in? Well, I hope some of that was helpful. <laughs> um, all of it was helpful. I, I appreciate all of that. You know, it helps just organize, you know, intentionality and how we think about things, mm. you know, what we're consuming. I mean, you, I want to now go see that documentary you were talking about, the Elmo creator. Oh, right? amazing. What we're taking in and actually what we're putting out there. 
is super important to our mental health and how we're interacting with ourselves in the world, right? Yeah, yeah. Also, I know that you had talked a little bit about this, this idea of revelation, and I was wondering if you'd speak to that a little bit. We had talked about it outside oh, of this yeah, podcast yeah, and kind of end yeah, there for today. My wife and I are, were on a call with a, um, a colleague that owns a, a retreat center. He made a, a, a point that the Greek meaning of the word apocalypse, you know, these times are very apocalyptic resembling times. <laughs> yeah. It's like we're, we're in it. And he, and he just pointed out that the Greek meaning of that word was revelation and having this amount of time to sit and be with myself, um, not constantly pushing, 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 but taking time to be in the discomfort of just being with me. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> a lot of, you know, there, there's a creative flow that automatically starts to happen and new ideas and new perspective, fresh perspective. And, and really, I mean, you know, I think a lot of things are being revealed in, in a lot of negative ways and, and a lot of positive ways. There's a lot of revelation that's going on. I don't know if you saw that video of that girl in Portland where the, she, the police were uh, firing off tear gas and rubber bullets and this woman appeared just butt naked <laughs> and just started gracefully walking in front of them and they all stopped and retreated. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, I saw the headline of that in the photo. I think they, I had, I think they had a revelation when that happened. <laughs> a big one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. sad and very crazy what's happening there right now yeah. and very disturbing. But um, in the middle of all that, this person appears with the wherewithal to just show up like that. Like, I, I mean, you can't not respect that. That was just, I thought that was awesome. <laughs> it's pretty awesome. I mean, talk about just going to the bare bones of things, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> right. Just showing up and the power of that. Well, it was great talking with you today. And I know that we're um, probably going to do just a few more episodes on other topics kind of related to what we're talking about today so i look forward to that and me too and what's your website arthur westinghouse w-e-s-t-i-n-g-h-o-u-s-e intervention intervention is singular.com westinghouse intervention.com take Take care care. have a good day kathleen okay thank you for joining us today on the blue couch On the Blue Couch is hosted by Kathleen Brennan, a psychotherapist specializing in trauma, anxiety, complex PTSD, and basically any form of loss or other life transitions. You can learn more about Kathleen and her practice at KathleenRBrennan.com. Check out her blog or follow Kathleen R. Brennan on Medium. Music for the podcast is the song Piano Hope by KB. This podcast is edited by Popped Collar Productions, a company specializing in creating innovative solutions through podcasting. Learn more at poppedcollar.net. Please share this show with others and hop on to Apple Podcasts or whatever your podcatcher of choice is and give us a good review. It helps others to find the show. We will be back soon to explore new adventures and new innovations in therapy right here on The Blue Couch. <laughs>